1: and welcome to the revolution. Welcome to an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW and streaming to CHD TV. I am your host Bernadette Pager. And with me today is my co host Dr. Javier Figueroa. Always wonderful. I've just been so blessed. I think this is three Fridays in a row that I have gotten you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yes. It's been, it's been uh sustainable work. I'll put it that way.
1: That's, that's very good to hear. Um, you know, that's what we got to do that this life work balance can be very challenging, but I hope you find this aspect of your life joining me on Friday afternoons to, to recharge your batteries as it were. Absolutely.
0: For,
1: yeah. for the mission, cause yeah, your insights are invaluable whenever you can get a word in advice <laughs> Um, so, yes, uh, hold on, I'm going to switch on over, I just, um, there we go. Um, we we do have a guest today, but we've got a little bit of a communication snafu, so I'm hoping he will be joining us. It should be Dr. Witcher uh, in Mississippi. Um, I'm going to hold off talking about the main topic we are going to discuss until he joins us, if he pops in if he doesn't pop in, well, we'll cover it a little bit, uh, sometimes this kind of stuff uh, happens, um, but in the meantime, Javier, I think what I would like to do first is, you know, you caught me off guard last week. You were, um, you were ahead of me in reading about a shot for newborns, and yeah, right. so I want to talk about that um, today here. So here is the Children's Health Defense, uh, the defender. Oh, you know what? What did I forget? I forgot. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the wonderful KKNW or CHD TV. This is just Nathan and I on our... Nathan, hello. That's our wonderful engineer. Javier and I uh, just talking, bringing information, doing exchange. <laughs> We're not doctors. Well, Javier is a doctor.
0: But <laughs> I'm not a licensed physician. That it'll He's not a licensed
1: physician. Yeah. <laughs> I just play one in real life. Um, <laughs> So, so yeah, the reckless in the, this is the headline from the defender that you, you caught last week, reckless in the extreme, the FDA panel recommends new RSV shot for use in healthy infants. Um, So I'm going to, I'm going to go peek at this because uh, thank you for bringing it to my attention. It seems like we're just being flooded with things coming out and being approved. Um, But so let's go ahead and read a little bit about this. Advisors to the FDA on Thursday recommended approval of AstraZeneca's new monoclonal antibody, which the drug maker said is designed to protect infants and toddlers up to age two from respiratory syncytial virus, RSV. The drug, Nurse, can you pronounce that?
0: Nursevimab.
1: Bless you, I won't even try. Would be delivered to newborns in a single shot at birth, or just before the start of a baby's first RSV season, or as a larger dose in a second RSV season in children who are highly vulnerable, CNN reported. Members of the independent committee, which includes several pediatricians, were enthusiastic about the potential of the antibody, STAT reported. Um, Let's see, I wanna go on. Executive Vice President of Vaccines at Sanofi, which will market the drug in the U S and a statement triumph um, is his last name from Sanify quote said most babies hospitalized with RSV are born at term and healthy, which is why interventions specifically designed to protect all infants are likely to result in the greatest impact. Now hold on, hold on a minute. Let's read that again, Javier. He says most babies hospitalized with RSV, Oh, are born at term and healthy. That's why they're targeting healthy babies?
0: Exactly. Okay. <clears throat> and again, RSV has very low fatality. It's mm-hmm. something that can be managed quite quite carefully. And uh, this adding an antibody that hasn't been properly tested, I mean, this was another one of these rushed uh, mm-hmm. antibodies who still don't know what the long-term effect of injecting antibodies into newborn infants. In, a, infant in a
1: newborn whose immune system is just launched into this fabulously microbial world that we live in. Exactly. And it's beginning to populate and figure <laughs> out what is friend, what is foe. I mean, that's why their immune systems are somewhat ramped down so that their bodies can figure it out, can mature. It takes three years to populate, to figure it out. In the meantime, they're supposed to be really relying on the natural passive immunity gotten from mother, Um, getting through the umbilical cord um, from the the lovely vermex the white thing a baby's covered in it's got all sorts of protective things and we should we could do a whole show on oh yes that stuff is it's it's (laughs) wonderful and then through mother's milk and mother contact and as well as the physical protecting of the mother by keeping the baby home and not bringing the baby out for the first couple of months to be sneezed on by everybody in the world right anyway Um, but, um, I'm going to go on and read a little bit more here. Medical experts interviewed by the defender raised a number of concerns, including what they said was inadequate safety testing. It's preposterous to give this drug prophylactically, especially without adequate safety testing, said Brian Hooker, PhD, PE, Senior Director of Science and Research for Children's Health Defense. AstraZeneca reported only a 48%. Efficacy for the drug. And Hooker noted that the circulating half life of the antibodies is probably less than one month, so the protection would be minimal at best. Correct. Hooker also commented on the fact that 12 infants' infant deaths were recorded during the clinical trial, which the FDA com- committee claimed were unrelated to the antibody. But they don't know that.
0: They don't. They just
1: make the guess, they make the claim. Right. There, There is no studies to go look. And um, that's one of the major problems that we have today, Javier, with the way FDA works is that the company that stands to profit in the billions does their own research. They decide what to present to the FDA. Yes. They make the determinations whether or not any adverse reaction seen was caused by their product or not.
0: No, this is it's it's ridiculous. And the the idea that you need to inject something prophylactically to potentially prevent a disease, RSV, that is seasonal is, you know, unless you and again, you're in you're in the birthing room, you're in contact, of course, you're going to catch something eventually, Mm -hmm. trying to do something prophylactically is nothing there. It's nothing but to boost sales of an unproven drug for a company.
1: And it was my understanding that antibodies such as this and things like the immune globulin that you can give um, if you actually are exposed to tetanus for real, not just cut yourself on your bicycle and go in to get a stitch, um, that immune globulin, you only give it when somebody actually has an infection.
0: Correct. Yes. And and with the... With tetanus, what happens is that the um, that there's an enzyme called acetyl, acetylcholinesterase that uh, needs to be produced uh, in order to get the muscle to relax. So basically acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter that causes the muscle to contract, right? Mm-hmm. Acetylcholinesterase removes acetylcholine from the from where the, the neuron contacts the the muscle to get it to, to fire. With tetanus, you remove a acety- seat, you inhibit acetylcholinesterase acetylcholine stays in place and builds up. And that's when you get rigid mm-hmm. uh, with, with, with tetanus, the, the, the problem. And again, with uh, immunoglobulin, you're trying to grab all the toxin that causes the, uh, that basically shuts down acetylcholinesterase. Okay. So with, with RSV, with the antibody, what you're hoping for is that the antibody is able to grab onto a virus that may or may not be there. But then again, you have to be careful because antibodies can cause allergic reactions Yeah, all on their own.
1: Right. And it's a, it's a foreign antibody.
0: Exactly.
1: Right. So what's to stop this brand new baby from looking at some foreign antibody? And, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's just so infuriating. Um, no,
0: you're, you're there to, it's, it's there to potentially cause future uh, immune um, reactivity. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's another major problem. There is no long-term studies to look at the effect of these immunoglobulins that are given to these children, to these babies, on their long-term effect and whether or not they develop, you know, allergies, other conditions, other long-term conditions. And again, they're doing the same handbook as vaccines. There is no long-term study to test how safe uh, it is for these populations. We already know that they're not really that altogether safe in the long term. But again, this is just another part of the playbook in the vaccine handbook. It seems
1: like it seems like, um, it, it seems like um, COVID ushered in an era where there's no product, no pharmaceutical product, unsafe enough, um, ineffective enough, and unnecessary enough that they won't approve it.
0: That's exactly it. It's, yeah,
1: it, you know, and with no long term uh, safety, um, Javier, I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can figure out how to get um, a um, our hopeful guest some more information. I'm wondering if there is a, a topic in particular that that you can wax poetic on for just a few minutes here. Um, I've got a couple of things in particular. Let me. Do you want to talk about sure. reject five, five, nine, nine, or, you know what? Oof. Here's one in particular. I'm not sure if I can give you, I'm going to grab, I think this would be a good one. Um, I'm going to put this for you. This is kind of, the, you know, everybody, this is, this is how we do things live. You know, we got weird there things going go. on. So I've, I'm going to pull up this PDF here. Javier, and you go ahead and take a look at it and just kind of talk live and discover things. I'm gonna share it. I got um, it. okay. Um, yeah, so I'll go ahead and let's see how I figure out how to, to share this. It's you can see it's the birth data for 2021. And as you go through, you're gonna see some really interesting things, especially in certain age groups. Um, let's see, let's I'm, see. Going I'm going to pulling that right over
0: here now. Yeah taking a look at that. And I've got this this well-laid out chart that goes from about 1969 to about 2021 on the number and rate of live births in the United States uh, and general fertility rates. Uh, And what's interesting is that there was, of course, a high uh, of the baby boom generation that came down from 1945 until about 1969. And then you start seeing basically uh, from 1975 an increase to about 1990, then a dip, and then an increase again in 2008, and a general trend line that now seems to be going down. <clears throat> and there seems to have been a fairly sharp drop-off between 20, uh, 2019 and 2020. And then you start seeing a slight trend moving up. But the birth rate, <clears throat> or the number of births per million, is uh, dropped significantly. Um, and that is a concern, because we're at uh, below replacement rates in terms of how many babies are born. Excuse me. <clears throat> um, and again, the, the number of women, uh, between the ages of 15 and 34, uh, that are giving birth is at an all time low for the United States. So that is a major, uh, that has major demographic implications as well as economic implications moving forward. So, for example, one of the major concerns is do we have enough people to actually 20 years from now, 10 years from now, to actually go into the workforce and replace retiring workers to fill certain, certain uh, areas of need and, re- and replacement? And the answer is no. Um, so that's that's a major problem.
2: Uh, and,
1: and, you know, Javier, it's really interesting. Um, I'm just getting a hold of another email to try to get um, some information to Dr. Witcher here, but look at the ages um, between the, where the, the uh, birth rate is plummeting. Yes. Um, now we don't necessarily want 15 to 19 year olds, you know, it's kind of young to be giving birth, but it's plummeting there. And I'm, I'm going to be showing you in a little bit um, some data from Washington state. Um, at the same time that the births are plummeting, the number of, and I hate to bring up the topic, but the number of abortions are also going down.
2: Right.
1: So in all the age groups, you will see, so the 15 to 19-year-olds, the 20 to 24-year-olds, and just a little bit, the 25 to 29-year-olds, these are the women who would have been, exposed to you can see at about look at about the 2006 oh yeah
2: cohort,
1: right oh yeah that's that's when hpv vaccines were introduced right there where it begins to take a dive
0: and that's um, in the youngest cohort that got the hpv vaccine
1: yeah yeah so you know you have to look at what and inv- when things begin and there's another chart that i could not find for you is w- wish i could have found it um that shows when you look at, um, I think it's, oh, it's somewhere at the CDC, but it's like a, it's a complete just turnabout plummet when you see these age groups um, in certain ways on their own. And that has to be some environmental exposure causing this. I mean, I, I suppose it could be cultural, but I for some reason, I do not think that it's cultural, just
0: a, cultural has a much slower. Uh, rate of change than uh biological or environmental
1: mm-hmm. so
0: that's I mean that's that's a good that's a very good catch the 25 to 29 year age group which should be proximal to the uh, cultural phenomena shows an almost imperceptible decline in the same time period so it's not a culture it, if there is a culture of, cultural effect it's really pronounced and that means that uh, 10 years ago there was a pronounced shift in the educational system or in the multimedia system, providing information that caused this decline to occur. Now, you would expect it to be more gradual, but as you pointed out, the the nosedive or the, the sharp downturn that it takes doesn't suggest that it's a cultural phenomena.
1: Yeah, exactly. It it, it definitely suggests that it's it's something environmental um, going on. I'm gonna try this again. Okay. on the fly going Um, so yeah that's very concerning now i'm gonna um well let's see i'm gonna stop sharing that i i want to go find for you now javier some information let me take you a little bit through what 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 here's what put me down the rabbit hole of looking at some data today that i wanted to discuss with you um I'm going to go ahead and share. And there's a comment his. in
0: from a caller. Yeah. Uh, Evelyn uh, Rosher. Did mm-hmm. anyone catch the David Martin world talk today? He was talking about BC Canada. And I know D- Dr. David Martin is has been a staunch investigator looking at the, uh, uh, the role of the uh, CDC and NIH as well as uh, EcoHealth Alliance And Ralph Barrick and Anthony Fauci on basically um, providing technology to the Wuhan Institute of Virology uh, to basically uh, give information and give uh, uh, the uh, techniques for coronavirus mutation and alteration. Now, David Martin's been talking about the fact that this is something that goes back all the way back to 1969 when coronaviruses were identified as potential uh, biological agents to be used for uh, warfare population control. And this is something that was uh, that was talked about in 1969, and there was already a lot of research. And, and Dr. David Martin is a lawyer and mm-hmm. a PhD, and his uh, core strengths are in understanding intellectual property and intellectual property law. So he's been able to identify... All the patents associated with it, and provide the links <clears throat> as well as the transfer of technology that allowed for this pandemic to come out.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow!
0: So I don't know about the specific talk that he gave, but that's the background on Dr. David Martin.
1: Okay, yeah he he's pretty amazing. I've seen him from the beginning of this in a lot of uh, different things. It's not for lack of data or, you know, backstory and information that this continues to be perpetuated. It's it's really the power of censorship and the, um, the capture of journalism around the world that you can't, this is what 60 Minutes should be covering. This is what all the journalists, great journalists should be uh, covering and they're not. It's, um, <clears throat> yeah, so thank you. Um, but was that? It was Evelyn for sending us that. That's nice. Um, <laughs> follow the money. Follow the money. Follow the the money. And there was a really good um, CHD TV uh, episode, Meryl Nass and uh, the, oh, I forget how to pronounce that. Sasha name. Latipova. Oh, bless your heart. Yes, her. That was so good. It was all about how this, you know, the military's involvement in all of this and how you know, all the normal regulations didn't have to happen, exactly. all of the loopholes that they did. But I wanted to share with you, um, you know, I just think it's, I think it's important to understand how massive this whole public health thing is. It, I mean, and, and government's really good about growing and growing and growing, but they're really bad about ever shrinking and somehow they have become this monster. Exactly. So, I saw on Twitter today that the Secretary of Health had tweeted about this thing up in Leavenworth with the the Washington State Association of Local Public Health Officials. So I went to explore what it was they were looking at. And, you know, we've got this thing that was passed and funded by our legislature called foundational public health services. And, you know, one of the things that they say that the foundational public health services model ensures all residents can depend on core, a core set of services that only governmental public health can provide. Only the government, they're saying, can provide this. So just the belief, the mindset by the legislature in Washington state and by public health officials that they have to step into all of these arenas as if the public and individuals and private companies, we can't figure it out for ourselves, is rather absurd. And then it says the problem is after a century of effectively preventing illness and premature death and increasing the length and quality of life in Washington communities, the public health system has become woefully inadequate and is now unable to meet its basic responsibilities to protect the health and safety of people in Washington state.
0: That is patently absurd. (laughs) Right. (laughs) what, what 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 the public health sector has done up until about 1990 has been to effectively provide one of the most safe effective methods of keeping people healthy by providing clean water uh taking away sewage making sure that uh, you know garbage is taken away making sure that there's a certain level of sanitation that by far has 98 percent of the value in public health yes bar none
1: Exactly. And I agree with you, there are places that even now, our our Department of Health and Board of Health, like we talked about last week, are doing a good job. Some of it was because of public pressure, like trying to get those PFOS out of, out of the environment, which is fabulous. But they listened, and were educated, and, you know, made a difference. I mean, citizens have to be hard, uh, part of even good government, good government agencies, they're fairly good about keeping water clean. We would love it if they would take the fluoride out of the water because fluoride is another ridiculously politicized thing. W- what I want to figure out is the psychology here, Javier. What is the psychology that goes on when, when they continue to like um, believe that fluoride in the water is good for
0: health because recognizing that fluoride in the water has been a detriment to public health would mean that they failed in the one job that they had which was to protect people <laughs> and the citizenry in this and that it was such a uh, and again this is something that in, in the field of toxicology fluoride has been known to be a detriment to, for neurological development for decades
1: mm-hmm.
0: the question this just goes to demonstrate the absolute raw power of politics and money to override any and all public health decisions that affect a large population and again there's there's you know the, the there's the old saying if people really knew how government worked there would be a revolution
1: <laughs> there really would be. And and in the founding, the founding fathers built the ability to overthrow. Now, we're not saying we're overthrowing the government here. Nobody come arrest us. FBI back off. We're just saying that, you know, when government becomes this monster, we should peacefully dismantle what we have Inadvertently built, that grew into this monster, and you know, whittle things down to where they belong. I become more and more my mother every day. I tell you, <laughs> um, I know my mama. There's going laughing at me. Okay, so so this is where they believe believe they belong. Communicable disease control and I, I, chronic disease injury and prevention. They cause a lot of the chronic disease and injuries through their programs. Absolutely. Um, Maternal child and family health. If they're they're pushing vaccines on pregnant women and infants, they're part of the problem. If they have not told pregnant women um, and young mothers don't administer acetaminophen, they're causing problems. And it's like every time they, because of the corporate capture of the literature and the things that they push out there and Javier, the government is always 20 years behind the science. You know, they're still in our government is still te- telling people to eat low fat foods, that cholesterol is bad, you know, and just all this other stuff. They just it, it it's infuriating. So they don't belong there. Um, environmental, public health and, you know, the whole climate, I just all of it. But, they, you know, a, a lot of good people caught up in this system and it's become this massive Um Monsters. So that's that's what got started me down the rabbit hole there. And then it began to uh, lead me to various uh, things that I had never seen before.
0: And, and before you go on, I just want to make sure that uh, Upton Sinclair was a 20th century author and a candidate for governor at hmm. one point. So it's, it's nice to get this, uh, there, there's a little bit overlap with, uh, with the, with our guest. If, uh, he yeah.
1: <laughs> if he makes it on today and if he doesn't, we'll have him on, but he has a uh,
0: wonderful quote that says it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his, not understanding it.
1: Oh, it was Upton Sinclair that said that. And it was Upton oh.
0: Sinclair that said that. Yes.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Follow the and money. then, <laughs> and then having to, you know, trying to figure out, um, you know, having that to step up and say I was wrong—that's one of the hardest. They need to teach that at all levels. You know, in parenting all the way. You know, it'd be a whole course in it. They, there should be like a public health graduate class in mia culpa. I was wrong, right? So that they could change course when they found out. And They also need to learn about uh, checks and balances so that they challenge each other on their thoughts. Um, and the misinformation of the misinformation accusers, you know, I don't know. We could go on and on. Um, So, but I landed on this um, interesting page within the Washington state department of health um, massive website. Um, They have quarterly reports and I was trying to figure out what the heck, what are the adverse events? Um, But what this is, is like mistakes. Is this following? Are you seeing this table? Um,
0: It's very tiny. I can't see. Yeah,
1: it's very tiny on my side too. Um, So but I will read to you what I'm seeing here. Procedure events. So, you know, this is all voluntary and I believe anonymous that you can report to the state if something goes wrong and adverse event type that this system is for, it's not like vaccine injury, it's the wrong site, the wrong patient, the wrong surgical procedure uh, retained for an object or post-operative death, um, contaminated drugs, devices or biologics, device function or use, uh, intervascular air embolism. So I guess that's misadministration. Correct, of, um, yep. Uh, patient protection events, a patient discharged to the wrong person, Uh, patient elopement, they just disappeared, patient suicide or attempted suicide, care management events, medication error, wrong blood product, maternal death or serious injury, neonate death death or serious injury, fall resulting in death or serious injury. You know, we caught when my papa's in the hospital, I caught him a couple of times just re-entering the room where he had gotten up and been about to fall because his sitter had gotten up to use the restroom or do something. And he had been left alone when he wasn't supposed to be one time he did fall. Um, We missed it. Um, Pressure ulcers, wrong sperm or egg. Oh, that's a bad one. Um, Irretrievable loss of an irreplaceable biological specimen failure to follow up or communicate test results hypoglycemia, hyperbilirubin is how I say it, it's another (laughs) way to say it, Um, spinal manipulative therapy, and then environmental events that can be reported are electric shock, wrong gas, burn, restraints, um, introduction of a metallic object during a radio. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know why I can't pronounce anything today. I apologize. <laughs> and then criminal events here, they have impersonation. Let's see, there was one event event in 2008 of an impersonation, total of eight altogether, which I think is interesting. Patient abduction, sexual assault, physical assault. Anyway, I just thought it was really interesting. Um, I had never seen um, that particular report before. And it's all voluntary and anonymous, just, you know, uh,
0: What's the point? I mean, yeah. an adverse event is a reportable event yeah. for just about any sort of medical intervention. Um, and there's mechanisms for it. And they put everything but the reportable events for vaccine injuries.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Which yeah. is, is just mind-blowing.
1: Yeah. And then so Javier, led me to this other page at the in Washington State. It, this is called results.wa.gov results.wad.gov. I'm like, what the heck is this? And I landed on goal metrics. It's always interesting to see. You know, another major problem that I would love to see us work on to get fixed in all the states is these. the metrics they choose usually don't really measure health. They measure uptake of protocols or, you know, following a compliance to certain things. Not necessarily... Um improvements so I was scrolling through this and taking a look and to see you know what was here we've got stuff about graduation rates highway the average Washington wage is seventy five thousand five hundred and fifty dollars Wow there must be a lot of millionaires that yeah. are bringing that up from your average oh, yeah. person you know making fifteen. Bucks an hour, even 20 bucks an hour. You know, that's like, that's crazy. Um, unemployment rate. Let's see, but I wanted to go down. Oh, um, electric vehicles registered in Washington, all kinds of uh, interesting things that they are. Uh, in 2021, there are 12,909 homeless people. I wonder how they count those. Okay, so here's the one that I wanted to show you. Do you see you seeing the pregnancy and abortion right here in the middle? Yes. Okay. Um, Kind of in line. Let me see if I can make this bigger. A little bit better.
0: Yes. Okay.
1: So. In two thousand and nine, the pregnancy rate, if you look all the way on the far right, was eighty two point four. Now I'm not the best with graphs, so I'm not seeing. Is it eighty two point four out of? I'm not seeing out of how many?
0: Probably they have to give it give it in uh, either a thousand or ten thousand. Eighty two point four pregnancies per thousand women or ten thousand women. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the what the uh, statistics are here.
1: Let's see. Maybe it says down here.
0: Um, It's probably somewhere else, but. um,
1: It would be nice if it was on this page. Uh, And maybe I'm just missing it. But whatever it is, a reflection of. In 2009, the rate was 82.4. And in 2020, it was down to 66.6. That's a massive drop.
0: Yes, it is. It's, It's a worrisome drop, too.
1: Yeah. And then you see the abortion rate, which I'm very glad to see plummeting to 10.7. But as we saw in the CDC's rate of births in, the, in some age groups, those have just plummeted. So is it that fewer unwanted pregnancies are happening or um, or the few, you know, more women are deciding to, who do get pregnant. There's fewer of them, but more are having the mm. babies. I don't know, but the the uh, live birth rate drop is not accountable to abortion because abortion right. has gone from sixteen point five rate down to ten point seven, and we went live births in two thousand nine. Uh, was uh, 88,952 and in 2020 it was 83,101. So, you know, we're going to have to look to see what happened in 21 and 22 with these covid shots that are causing that's, so many fertility issues.
0: That's that's a point 8 point that's a 0.8 uh, point drop in the abortion rate when you start seeing drops in the range. the highest one was approximately 0.9. Mm -hmm. in 2009 so the the change uh sped up slowed down slowed down and then start speeding up again
1: yeah and again you know i would love if somebody really is good at at data crunching and graphs and all of this i would love to see all of this sort of Mm -hmm. overlaid and compared with Um, like go back a little bit further and let's see what environmental factors changed. And the only one that I know for sure was, that was around the 2006 era, um, was the introduction of the HPV vaccine.
0: And and don't forget the introduction of the, uh, uh, the mRNA injections. They also had a significant, uh, uh, drop in fertility.
1: That we'll be seeing in future data. Correct. But we're not seeing it here. But oh, good the point, yes. Right. The the other thing that I I want to f- see if we can figure out now children today, young girls, well, boys and girls, but I'm thinking about girls here. By the time they're in the sixth or maybe it's the seventh grade, they're getting again six or seven doses of the, the DTAP or the TDAP vaccine. Six or seven doses of um, tetanus vaccine. And there's studies showing there's an association between overexposure to the tetanus vaccine and antiphospholipid syndrome, which is a leading cause of infertility in women in the United States today. So might that be part of the puzzle? Because I think it's multifactorial.
0: Oh, there's yeah. probably
1: gut dysbiosis, exposure to glyphosate. Dropping um, sperm count. Dropping sperm count. So many things going on. Um, that are playing into this. And it, it, like you said, it's very concerning because I've, I've seen some of the, um, the graphs that those who know how to look at population growth, and they're afraid we're going to get to a place where you can't, it's, it leads to extinction at some point. And it doesn't, you don't have to drop to too low of fertility rates. for no. It puts the whole human race in jeopardy.
0: Correct. Correct. And then there's also, of course, the, um, the added uh pressure of also an increase in the autism rate depending on the severity mm-hmm. uh you know the the, the chances of uh, uh having a family decrease as well and that's mm-hmm. that's another factor that needs to be considered i know we we've gone from one in ten thousand now to one in thirty five and again that's from nineteen seventy to now and don't tell me it's not because it's because we've we've started better diagnostic criteria that's that's no. bs that's absolute bs
2: and
1: as a scientist talk about that talk about you how you can't have um, you can't have genetic epidemics it just no. doesn't work that way it doesn't and- work that way you know, it's still relevant. Mm-hmm. The brilliant book by J.B. Hanley, How to Win the Autism Epidemic. He went meticulously through all of this scientific research, all of the studies, and there were many brilliant, broad, well-funded, well-designed studies looking at the health of children in the United States going back to like early 1900s. Yes. Right. And I haven't read the book in a while, so um, I might not get all of this exactly mm-hmm. right, but just I'm talking in big Terms, and and they were looking for children that they would have maybe deemed, say, retarded or behind or having um, certain behaviors or disorders, and they were looking very very closely at the children, you know, for these studies. Um, so if something like autism had existed, all of these studies throughout the years would have found them. Oh yes, and. They did. They did not. It wasn't no. until this. It truly began to escalate because the numbers truly were going up. Correct. That. Um, that you know, it really began to emerge. So this whole idea, it's just, it's just better diagnosis is absurd.
0: It, it's absolutely absurd. And again, we're talking about something that has been ramping up, that has been increasing as the as the one potential. And I should say potential because I have to be a scientist about it. Mm-hmm. Has the link been established for sure? Well, let's put it this way. We're, we're, we're well past the, the, the Hill criteria for uh, a causation.
1: Explain to our listeners who are new to the Bradford Hill criteria. Explain what that is.
0: So the Bradford Hill criteria are nine criteria that are used to establish if there is a uh, uh, correlation causation uh, effect between mm-hmm. what is seen, a disease condition, and multi-factors in the environment. Like for example, is it due to poor nutrition? Is it due to, uh, you know, fluoride in the drinking water? Is it due to, uh, maternal stress before birth, all these factors. So what, um, what it has, what the health criteria basically says is look at the timing, look at the environmental cues, look at the mechanism of action, um, and there's nine criteria. I can't remember quite all of them at this point. It's
1: okay. I put but, you on the spot. <laughs> but
0: it's you know it's it's something that has been established and that was used to basically show that you know there's a there's a there's a tight link between smoking and lung cancer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's you know the 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 Bradford Hill criteria were instrumental not only in that but also in thalidomide.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So this is something that epidemiologically is well established. There's plenty of uh, good computer models for doing it, um, and at this point, you know the, the the strongest correlations are between the amount of aluminum in uh, injections, and again, there's also some association with uh, some of the earlier vaccines that we're using. Um, uh, uh, a mercury based uh, desiccants.
1: Mercury Thimerosal. Dimerosal. Which is still in the multi dose flu vaccine. You're not supposed to give it to children under three, but they're still right. injecting it in children above three. And yeah. there's trace amounts in the individual exactly. um, shots and and some adult only shots continue exactly. to contain.
0: And then the field um, of teratology, which is a study of how environmental uh, compounds interact with the development. Of embryos and uh, adolescents uh, in, mm-hmm. different, uh, in, in different animals, they've shown a very tight correlation between aluminum and uh, abnormal neurological development. That's not yeah. questioned anymore.
1: Well, we've said here a couple of times on this show, we talked about the CDC's study after 60 years or however many decades of using aluminum adjuvants. They finally did a study um, with their own people using VSD data, the data independent researchers can't get a hold of, and it clearly showed for every 1,000 micrograms of aluminum an infant is exposed to, um, their increased risk of persistent asthma, I think it's called goes up 17 to 38%. And, and again, I always have to say why the heck are they finally admitting asthma? You know, and I I think we're going to start seeing more of those because they want to move everything to the mRNA platform,
0: correct, correct,
1: which is I mean, as bad as the aluminum shots are, I mean, we've got to stop all this nonsense. But I mean, it's it's just i don't know it's rat poison compared to um mrna is more like a nuclear bomb going off oh yeah in your child it's
0: horrible oh yeah it's horrible exactly
1: yeah and i think that our um our guest is is got the information now might be trying to um to join us we'll see um i wanted to show you this uh department of health page called you and your family doh.wa.gov backslash you and your family and there's little hyphens in there and you know just look at the it's got it for those just on the radio or on podcasts they've got a photo of two little kids a girl looks about seven little boy about five Um, they're wearing colorful face masks they're giving us the thumbs up Their squinty eyes looks like they're smiling, right? The way they got that smiling squint to their eyes. They're wearing um, pullover sweatshirts that say, hug me, I'm vaccinated. And has a little needle on it. And, you know, it's, I mean, there's almost no words, right? Like, you pick, just the other day here in my little town in Tennessee, um, it was at the counter at a drugstore, and they had packets of, of face masks for children like that. These had, like, Disney characters on them or something. And you pick it up and you read it, and it says, this mask will, is not for any infection control, does not stop the prevention of a transmission of any virus, won't protect you from catching any virus. Um, it's, and then, and then it, it boasts that it's breathable. So where is, you know, the cognitive dissonance that people have today that still want to mask children or mask themselves? The psychological warfare on the people of this nation is just absurd that they could think that putting that, even though it says right on the package that it doesn't help them and that it's breathable, What do they think they're doing? And now we've got studies that show, but what will it trap is carbon. uh, Is it dioxide? I always get monoxide and dioxide. Is it dye closest to your face?
0: Oh, it's carbon dioxide. Yeah.
1: Dioxide. There we go. Um, I get all my words confused when there's so many similar things. Unless it's written right in front of me. Uh, I don't want to sound like an idiot because a lot of people probably already think I am anyway. But so it's just it just breaks my heart. Because it's it's not about facts, Javier. The facts are on our side about what real health looks like, um, and what really can be done if there's circulating infection to to boost protection, and how important it is to be exposed to gain that natural immunity. But what are they? What's our tax dollar money doing? Is pushing fear? Yes, fear, fear, fear. It's it's so infuriating, um, and. You know, So I think I want to stress right here because don't offer a problem without a solution. I want to stress right here that if you're hearing this and you're infuriated like I am, it's completely within our control to stop all this nonsense. And the most important thing is, of course, don't comply. Um, Educate everybody around you with the full facts and also pay really close attention to who you vote for at every level because we have to stop... Um, we have to begin putting an end to this and um, and pulling back some of this. Begin defunding <laughs> some yeah., of um, you know, I like that they do breastfeeding education. Um, but do we really need our taxpayer dollars doing that? I mean, who used to teach this before the Washington State Department of Health decided they had to take this over? Wasn't it mothers, aunts, you know, godmothers, you know, family passing skills and and nurses and, you know, lactation nurses. Yes. Um, so look at all the places that they now feel they belong. Um, and much of it is not within what we believe to be. So it's only one paradigm. Yes. Um, yeah, we could go on and on. So that, that sort of sent me down the rabbit hole a little bit i'm gonna i'm gonna go find some more um i'm gonna go find some more of these things because i just kept clicking and going down one rabbit hole after another of all of these things that they were looking at that they were doing i just can't imagine the money spent just on wages alone of the people that they are paying to do all of this stuff um, we've got public por- uh, performance. Re- oh, here's one that I wanted to. Uh, here's one, Javier, that I hadn't I didn't have time to look at, but I want to share with you. These are public performance reviews that have been done. Yeah. So the one that interested me is and look at say they provide their slide decks and the TVW links. So go go check those out. They've got suicide prevention, which is important. And I encourage people in Washington to try to get a hold of the the individuals at the state level that oversee the suicide prevention and give them the literature on the psychotropic drugs, the anxiety drugs, the depression drugs, the ADHD drugs that are driving um, prescription violence here. We've got to put an end to that. Um, Oh, this one. Achieving clean energy goals by decarbonizing transportation. You want to you want to take a peek at that at the slide let's do for it. that. <laughs> uh, let's see if let's see if that Oh, good, it did follow me. Good deal. Okay, so um, this was from April. I mean, first of all, Javier, give me your personal opinion about the whole idea of moving to all to decarbonizing transportation. What are your thoughts? What have you?
0: Um. That's you know there's so many factors involved in doing that. One is to move, try and move the entirety of the uh, of the transportation sector towards an uh, uh, basically an electrical based transportation system. It can be done, but the issue then then becomes okay, what do we do with the batteries associated with? Uh, with these cars is a recycling program do we have a system for actually managing potential runoff lithium is highly toxic okay we have over a hundred years of knowing how to handle ethanol and uh, uh, diesel and, and uh, gasoline mm-hmm. do they have programs that are actually going to implement that do we have enough capacity in the electrical grid to support uh, going over to full electric system
1: well and okay so the question that they never talk about is when you plug your device in and charge it, where does that electricity come from?
0: Oh, and they're decarbonizing, so there's a big move. Well, they've been shutting uh, coal plants in this country mm-hmm. very, very quickly, and they've also you know and to take over what's what's the the process has been they've converted some of the coal fired uh Uh, power stations to natural gas, but they're also in the process of pushing to shut those down or limit their construction. Mm. And everyone's pushing towards wind and solar and geothermal. Geothermal, you need to have certain locations that you can produce it. Wind and solar are not what are called a constant, uh, constant capacity Mm -hmm. uh, energy systems. So if you're trying to move towards a completely green system, you still have to count for over 70 per, 70% of the energy use that isn't dependent on uh, these, uh, quote, renewable resources. Mm-hmm. And again, wind also comes with a lot of other problems that most people don't want to consider yeah. or even talk about. Yeah. And solar is incredibly coal intensive in terms of its production. Most people don't know that either.
1: Mm. Yeah. And, you know, so I feel like, you know, it's not a, there's not one answer to the energy issue of what do we do so it with your own home put up some solar panels you might have your own little windmill or something right but these technologies are not proving scalable to fit our needs so you know where's the common sense i wanted to read to you there was a a Okay, yeah, really quick, a study on electric vehicle versus diesel, they did this in Germany. And this is what they found. The above studies indicate because they did a, a review that the terminology zero emission is a misnomer when referring to electric vehicles. Also, lawmakers should be cautious about subsidizing electric vehicles when their electricity is generated mainly by fossil fuels because they're not lowering the carbon dioxide emissions from automobiles by doing so. Exactly. The old saying that the road to HE double is paved with good intentions may well apply to many of the gimmicks and workarounds advocated by whatever group is popular with the political and media elite in any given time. What they they look made a really close examination but basically all of the energy it would take to make the batteries and the toxins to make the batteries and these mines, these little children in these countries that are you know yes um if you put all that together diesel comes out ahead of being better for the environment
0: absolutely
1: yeah So, oh, we got to take a break. And I think that we're going to have our guest on in the second hour. I'm very excited. So you've been listening to an Informed Life radio on 1150 AM KKNW and CHD TV. We'll be back in a few minutes.
0: Hi, I'm Brian Dacus, president and founder of... If you're looking for a publication that delivers
2: honest takes and critical insights into the issues of our day, then look no further than the flame paper. The Flame paper is written for the people, by the people, who aren't afraid to challenge a mainstream narrative, be it health voter fraud, political correctness, or even the one world government. The Flame is full of timely articles, reports, and expert advice written by freedom-loving, truth-telling experts, journalists, and concerned citizens. To subscribe, go to theflameusa.com.
1: During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary. Treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more,
0: Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org. Org today. We need a
1: revolution. There's only one solution. I need somebody to show me. Somebody to show me. the love. We need
0: a
2: revolution.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the second hour of an informed life radio on 11:50 AM AMKKN. NW and CHD TV Um, with us this second hour. We've got Javier Figueroa still with us. The wonderful Javier. Hello, sir. Hello. Um, And now we did. We finally got our wonderful guest today. So glad he could make it on. His name is Dr. John Witcher, um, and he's coming to us from the great state of Mississippi. Um, Welcome, sir. I'll tell people a little bit about you here in a second, but I just want to say welcome to the show.
2: Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. Honored to be here.
1: Yeah. You know, I think I might have seen you recently at an event. You look very familiar. I think I met you in Nashville or I saw you in Nashville, but we didn't get to shake hands. So. Yeah,
2: I think so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At the uh, Dr. Stu Warner and uh yeah. Warner event.
1: Yeah. I think that's might have been where I, I did see you're looking, looking awfully familiar.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, so let me tell uh, listeners a little bit about you. So you're a native Mississippian. Five generations back, you attended medical school at the University of South Alabama after earning an engineering degree. Now, that's that's interesting. He did some training in OBGYN at University of Mississippi Medical Center. Then he became a general practitioner in rural Mississippi in 1996. Um, Dr. Witcher has been caring for COVID patients, the duration of the pandemic, both in the inpatient and outpatient settings. And, and bless your heart, thank you, because I, I know you're aligned with the wonderful uh, FLCCC docs, Peter McCullough and all those. Um, and you are the founder of Missouri, I mean, sorry, Mississippi against mandates. And you've been very vocal regarding pushing back against unlawful mandates in hospitals, workplaces, and schools. So, you know, welcome so much to An Informed Life Radio, as this title of our show says. We try to bring on um, guests and topics and information so people can make informed decisions in their life. And, you know, uh does informed consent exist anymore dr witcher do you think in this country
2: <laughs> yeah that's a good question <clears throat> you know that's something we we live by as doctors you know informed consent is so important uh you know i've been a doctor here in mississippi for 25 years uh practice out in the rural settings i started a company as a young doctor where we staff uh, hospitals in the er primarily so been all over the state uh Personally, I've treated probably forty thousand patients, uh, Mississippians, over the years. And you know, as an ER doctor, that that's mainly what I've done. I've uh, been a general practitioner and worked in, in clinic settings, but uh, but I've always done ER work. And uh, in in the last ten years, I've been that's what I've been doing exclusively, working in the ERs. And uh, when COVID hit, I was the medical director of an ER in a little town, Yazoo City, Mississippi. And uh, you know, we. That hospital we do, uh, these smaller hospitals, a lot of times the ER doctors work uh, as the hospitalists as well. You know, we usually have like nurse practitioners that that help us uh, uh, on the floor side, for example, but the, the ER doctors are generally kind of like the ER doctor and the uh, hospitalist. Mm-hmm. And so when COVID hit, you know, we were seeing COVID patients from day one. But um, but yeah, throughout my career, informed consent is a big, big part of medicine because uh, everything we do, there's a risk, you know, whether it's prescribing medications, uh, doing any sort of procedure, um, there, there's always risk involved. And so as a physician, you know, we're, we're trained to first, first and foremost, do no harm. You know, that is a Hippocratic Oath, but really it's, it's, it's more than that. You know, certainly for me and I think most physicians that, that, that uh, want to practice and do, do right by their patients, It's really, there's so many things that a patient can be harmed by, and it's really the doctor who has to be the advocate for their patient, an Mm. individual patient. And so only that doctor knows by examining the patient and and taking the history physical and uh, and, and knowing the patient uh, what the risks are, uh, you know, because for any given procedure or treatment, every patient's unique. And so informed consent is about informing that individual patient, what the uh, risks are and the benefits of any given treatment or procedure, and then allowing the patient to, to make up the, to, to make the final call. And so that's always that's a you know, big part of, of what doctors do. But when COVID hit, all that went out of the out the window.
1: Yeah, and um, Javier, he's he's echoing what we heard from Dr. Denise Sibley here in Tennessee. She came on as a guest um, last week, and she said, you know, in her earlier days and how she was taught as a physician is exactly like you said, you need to be an advocate for your patient. Mm-hmm. And most practices used to be small family practices, individual practices, and you truly did work for that patient and but then you know everything began to graduate and move up to these massive systems and you now work for the system and not so much for the patient and then the rapid fire circulating of of you know 10 minute visits there there's no getting really to know your patients well i can't imagine working in the system i think it would be so awful when You know, my pop was in the hospital so many times um, at the end of his life. And there would be a doctor just open up the door, pop his head in and say, how you doing? And if you just said, hey, and then he left, well, he billed you, right? Well, he said, hey, you know, (laughs) I don't know. Um, Everything became an industry, Mm -hmm. you know, and we just became part of the assembly line. And sort of like, oops, if this jab and this pill and this protocol hurt you, but it didn't hurt 90% of the people. Oops, you were just one of the the people that fell off the conveyor belt. We got to keep pushing you through. And so I, I love that you say within minutes of coming on the show, that it's a doctor's duty to advocate for their patients.
0: And a quick question, and pardon me, Part of the industrialization of medicine has just been this ongoing requirement of doctors to become more bureaucrats than anything else. Do you yeah. see how much value do you see in the ICD uh, coding structure as a practicing physician
2: well that's <clears throat> you know that's all part of the uh, <clears throat> industrialization of medicine you know the the system and uh, you know the ICD coding, I mean, it's volumes. They come out with, with new codes every year or every few years. And, and really, as a physician, you know, uh, over the last 25 years is, you know, back when I first started, we were doing charts by hand, for example. And, uh, and really, just in the last uh, 10 or, or 12 years is really when these whole electronic health records took hold. When computers really, really got involved, I, I can remember. You know, Obamacare was a was a big, big player in this, and it, we're all headed. It's it's towards socialized medicine. is really what it is. I mean, you, <clears throat> we could just boil it down to and call it what it is. Uh, during COVID, I call it communized medicine at this point because I mean, it, there was no. Uh, we had doctors had no say so in really uh, what to do with the patients, and so, um, so yeah, so I mean, it's been a a. Uh, it's all about billing. You know, Mm -hmm. it's about, uh, you know, you can't, the insurance companies have taken control. The hospital administrators have taken control and now the federal government has taken control in cahoots with big pharma. Mm -hmm. So it's, it is a one gigantic, uh, medical, medical industrial complex, if you will. Or, and, um, and yeah, doctors just do not have time to, uh, to really care for patients. They spend more time, um, you know, working on the computer. You know, I I can tell you a typical day in the ER, a 12-hour day where I may see 20, 30 patients, you know, I'm spending, you know, for every uh, minute I spend with a patient, I probably spend two or three minutes on the computer. And, uh, you know, you would think, well, uh, you know, maybe a handheld device carrying it around, but in the ER, you, you know. Uh, we just don't do that in, in these little rural ERs. There's a, a, basically a, a computer terminal that's sitting off of the, to the side, and you have mm-hmm. to go run around, see the patients, to go back and sit down and document. Mm-hmm. And so, and these ICD codes—that's that's what it's all about. They they want you to document more and more and more. So so the coders—I mean, you have a whole department in these hospital settings and even clinics that that they're a billing department. And they mm-hmm. want you, the more information that you can fill out, that means the more ICD code, ICD-9 codes they can code. So they, their goal is the, is the code, as many diagnosis codes as possible because that increases the billing. And so yeah. it, it's a game that's played for sure. It- It is. And,
1: and we need to stop the nonsense, you know, so I'm so glad for individuals like you and so many of the other brave doctors and individuals in medicine who are standing up, speaking out and taking action. Um, This is so very important. I want to, Javier lost his connection, but he'll be back. I want to share with everybody, this wonderful website, the um, MS against mandates, Mississippi against mandates, and you were, you know, a founder of this great movement. So tell us about um, Mississippi Against Mandates.
2: Yeah, so like I said, I was in a small ER setting, a small hospital setting in Yazoo City when the COVID hit. And I was the medical director of the ER and the hospital's program. And so we started treating COVID patients from day one. And, uh, you know, we used many things that that Dr. Peter McCullough has uh, promoted as well as other doctors. I don't remember exactly where I heard, uh, well, you know, kind of saw the data. I probably did a little research and, you know, it, the, da- the research was there. Hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, uh, zinc uh, were the d- treatments of choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, we started doing that right away in our hospital setting. As a medical director, I had, had control over that. And so, you uh, I think many doctors throughout Mississippi and, and really throughout the nation we're using these protocols. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very, you know, like I said, very prevalent in the literature, and uh, it was it was promoted. Of course, then when uh, Donald Trump said something about hydroxychloroquine, and you know, he, it, the argument occurred between him and, and Dr. Fauci, and he said, "Well, this is just ana- anecdotal. You know, there's no evidence that that this works for COVID." And so then the the fight started, and uh, but
1: uh, and and Fauci. Wasn't he one of the doctors or the, you know, back in, um, not a doctor, but whatever his degree, I forget his credentials. It is doctor, but.
2: Yeah. He, he's patients. Some, yeah, but a patient. Yeah. Medical doctor, infection, infectious disease doctor. Yes. Right.
1: But like in 2005, he was involved in a study with hydroxychloroquine in the original SARS cove. So his claiming that there was no evidence that it worked, his name was on the study that showed that it had the potential yeah. to work. Right. I mean, everything, yeah, everything's coming
2: forward, but yeah, yeah. So,
1: so here you are using it and because you're running a facility, was there anybody over you? Or did you personally get pushback where you what, were? Yeah.
2: I mean, when, when that uh, you know uh, like I said, when Trump pushed forward and then of course there was a Lancet, uh, bogus Lancet study that came out and said it was harmful. Um, so yeah. So the hospital pharmacists actually came to me and said, you know, uh, so this hospital setting I was in is a part of, a, it's about 22 hospitals and, uh, you know, in, in a corporation. And, uh, mm. so anyway, they, they had a, a committee, that got together including pharmacists and some of the, the doctors and they came up and just said, you know, we, we're going to go with, uh, with what the federal government saying that hydroxychloroquine can't be used for COVID. And, uh, and so, um, they told me to stop. And I said, well, you know, I, I'm, you know this small rural hospital I'm the doctor here we have these other doctors and nurse practitioners that I'm overseeing i mean we we're, we're seeing good results uh, we don't certainly don't see any harm being uh, caused from this medication mm-hmm. so uh, we kept doing it and then good for you. yeah and did, but that didn't take long we we got a memo from the higher ups that or i, I did and uh that said basically that we kept, could not use hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID patients so at that point i had to decide you know do i want my job because that that's you know i was a contracted i wasn't an employee but a, a con contracted worker you know on a mm-hmm. contract i had a three-year contract and so you know i was like well you know i do I want my job or do i do I want to uh you know do what what i think is right for the patient it was very difficult you know i came home uh you know Pray with my wife about it, and we just, uh, you know, we made. I made the decision that you know I'd watch the patients closely, and um, you know we do the best we could. You know, one thing we, uh, you know, we knew early on that intubating patients w- w- was not the route to go, and so that was one thing I, I, I you know, did, strove very hard not to have these get these patients intubated, and uh, and that was a battle because you know I, I couldn't stay at the hospital twenty four seven, so. When I'd come home, a patient, um, you know, at night may have a problem, and uh, and, and whoever the doctor on call would sometimes um, would intubate the patients, mm-hmm. and uh, and so we didn't have an ICU there. So if a patient got intubated, they got transferred to another hospital. But mm-hmm. but we knew that this, uh, you know, even though their O2 sats were low, the best thing to do was was not to intubate them to try to just give them any any sort of supplemental oxygen possible, but not intubate them, mm-hmm. uh, and so. Uh, it, it was a battle. We you know, there was uh, some some people on the staff that that felt, uh, you know, that um, there was that they wanted to follow the federal government protocols to the T. And then mm-hmm. there was others like myself who, you know, I just so happened to be the medical director that they were not on board 100 percent. But mm-hmm. we, we went along and um, did the best we could. But um, but, you know, of course, um, uh, you know, then the vaccines came out and that was a whole nother push. That, uh, you know, I felt, um, you know, that I could promote the vaccines as safe and effective because I felt they were, you know, experimental. They're new. There's no way that uh, we know there's not enough data. And so, uh, you know, the hospital administrator wa- wanted me to push the, the vaccines, uh, promote them to all our all the employees there. Hmm. And I just said, well, you know, I can't do that, you know, and uh, they could take it on their own, but they need to you know, know that. Uh, that there's risk and there's no, there's no liability. If something happens to them, there's nobody that, that will be responsible. And so I didn't sign this blanket order. They actually got another doctor who was in town that, uh, part of the hospital setting He's a, 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 a primary care doctor. But, uh, so anyway, that was, you know, so that, that got me, uh, basically more, um, you know, uh, demoted it, so to speak. I, I was the hospital administrator was not happy, when I would not uh, push the COVID shots, he said that basically out of all the 22 hospitals, we stuck out like a sore thumb that, um, you know, we wouldn't follow the protocols. But, but so I, I, you know, so that, that's kind of how that, that happened throughout uh, 2020. And then uh, of course, I was, you know, listening to many of these doctors by this point, you know, the American frontline doctors, I had um, signed up with them and following them. And then of course, Dr. Peter McCullough came along and, uh, you know, I really kind of, you know, I felt like there was you know, there was really nobody more credible than, than Dr. Peter McCullough with his experience and, uh, you know, his credentials. And so I really followed him closely and, and he was concerned about the shots. He was concerned, of course, about, uh, and Remdesivir was another drug that Dr. Fowler okay. promoted. We were concerned about that. And so eventually I, uh, we, we finally, it, it took us a while, but when they mandated, that everybody take the COVID vaccines in the hospital. That was in August of 21. And they said by October, the end of October, everybody had to be vaccinated or you'd be fired. Mm -hmm. So that's when we started Mississippi Against Mandates. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Good for you. Um, You know, I just can't imagine trying to work, try to save your patients and work within this political dynamic. And how infuriating when, um, you know, Humans do not behave well in the absence of responsibility. Had this hospital administrator been, felt an inkling of the responsibility for the outcome of any patient receiving a COVID shot or remdesivir or the vent, might they have done things differently? I believe so. But but when you know that you're completely protected, no matter what you do, and your hospital makes more money if you do what's being incentivized, right? I mean, it's just it's just human nature. and it's it's sick that our government is using incentives and disincentives to try to push what they want and and get between the doctor-patient relations uh, relationship. Um, you said, I think it's kind of funny that that administrator said that because you weren't pushing the shots that like your stats for the shot uptake, like stuck up like a sore thumb. And it reminds me of my brother-in-law had told me he had gone to work for a company owned by the Japanese and culturally things are different. So in the United States, you know, with us, you know, cowboy type of attitude is the squeaky wheel gets, a squeaky wheel gets the oil. Right. Mm. You just you get noisy and you get the right attention. You get things done. But in some of these old other cultures, um, the uh, the raised thumb gets the hammer. So it's all about in some of these other societies culturally and like I'm thinking of like China is you need to conform if you if you stand up or different that's when you get the hammer and they're trying to teach all of us culturally through all of this um, to not be that raised thumb they they're wielding their hammers. So bless you for getting a little bruised and standing up and, and standing up for your, your clinic there. Um, I wanted to ask you too, sir, about this, about we, the people 50 recall the shots, because you are very much involved in this too. And you and I were both on a, in a meeting recently where this was being presented. This is really exciting to me, this whole thing. So I would love it if you could introduce people to what we, the people 50 is all about. And the website is we, the people 50.com.
2: Yeah, this is a, <clears throat> a movement that's uh, headed up by Dr. Chansey Chung Lindsay, who's a PhD toxicologist out in Texas. And uh, I've been, uh, first, found out uh, about Dr. jancy probably, uh, yeah, right, right before, right when we started Mississippi against mandates. Matter of fact, she was one of the first ones that came uh, that we had on with us. Uh, we have a Telegram uh, channel that we do chats nightly. We brought her on to talk about uh, uh, a pregnancy, these shots during pregnancy. She was uh, mm-hmm. she was outspoken from day one about the harms. And so we brought her on and we became fast friends and she eventually came to Mississippi and spoke at one of our events. And so we've, we've, and she's also uh, one of our advisors for she's mm-hmm. our scientific advisor for Mississippi against mandates. And, uh, <clears throat> she also came in this about the same time. We brought Dr. Peter McCulley and he's, he's our national advisor, medical advisor. And, uh, we, we brought him to, um, to Mississippi in 2020 and, uh, we had a, a, a very, uh, a uh, large meeting where he, he basically talked about the, the risk of the shots. That, that's where we're, you know, like, like I said, we started with that and, and we're continuing on that. And so February of this year, uh, February 27th, we had about 25 speakers that came to our state Capitol and it was led by Dr. Peter McCullough as a, as a doctor. And Dr. Chansey Chung Lindsay was our lead scientist. We had other public health officials, other scientists. We had doctors, uh, we had We had several doctors from Mississippi that are on, on our board with Mississippi against mandates. Uh, we had uh, Dr. Uh, Rennie Moon, who's a pediatrician. She, she came and spoke on behalf of pediatricians and and, and what she felt uh, you know these shots were not uh, suitable for children. We also had Dr. Uh, uh, Jim Thorpe from uh, the OBGYN doctor from Pensacola. He spoke about the, the uh, detriments to, to uh, vaccinating pregnant. Uh, patients. We had Dr. Christina Parks, who is a PhD scientist, and she came and spoke. We also had um, uh, uh, doc. We had eight vaccine injured patients there, or we had six vaccine injured and two uh, parents of, of vaccine injured children that actually died after receiving one shot of the uh, mRNA vaccine. So mm-hmm. we we came forward and, uh, like I said, we had this hearing in our Capitol building and uh we had we had some good media coverage of course the local media they you know they didn't report accordingly they for example none of the vaccine injured patients they they showed none of their testimony uh and very little of of everyone else's testimony they basically uh made it sound like we were just against the co the the vaccine mandates you know mm-hmm. covid-19 vaccine mandates which we were but uh, you know, at first, that was our big push, but of course, once we started treating vaccine injured patients and seeing patients being injured, disabled, and dying, then mm-hmm. we, then we you know got more alarm and so this mm-hmm. February meeting we had here just you know a few months ago, this was about stopping the shots in Mississippi mm-hmm. so epoch times did a nice write up if you, you know if you go there you can, you can find uh, the details and uh, and basically, you know Dr. Peter McCullough, like I said, he led this uh, This um, hearing and it was all about, uh, you know, we have enough information now that we were calling on our attorney general to um, to start the investigations and to stop the shots. I mean, there's there's so many reasons to stop them, not not the least of which to mention there's patients being injured, disabled and dying. But but also just the the manufacturing processes of of these uh, covid shots, they don't meet standards. And so there's just a lot of concern there. Uh, And we don't know what they do long term. You know, we don't know how long they stay in the body. Uh, You know, we were told they don't they don't leave the arm, but we know that they do go all over the body. They, uh, you know, these spike proteins end up in the in the uh, ovaries, the spleen, the liver, all over the brain. And so um, just very concerned. We, you know, we think possibly it could even alter DNA. So. So there's lots of concerns, and so we're calling on our uh, government officials to uh, step up and to to halt Mm -hmm. the shots and, and, and further investigate.
1: That is so fantastic. And so, you know, I kind of promoted the show that we're going to try to help people figure out how to stop the shots where they live. So some of the conversation and some of the meetings have been as they're trying to get it done at the state level, which is a little bit slower going, see what you can do at the county level. Um, Do you you know any of the details what they did in Idaho? Because they talked a bit about um, that they had success in Idaho.
2: Yes, so after our meeting in Mississippi that we had, uh, Dr. Chancy Chung Lindsay uh, took it upon herself with some other folks, uh, Carolyn Blakeman, who's who I've worked with. She's the Remdesivir and the hospital death protocols. She's been working with me, or I've been working with her in uh, uh, Betrayal 19, former Feds project. That's a lot of information there, but but we've been working together since uh, early 2022. 20, uh, with lawyer uh, Brad Geyer and, and many other lawyers that, that names you would probably know, uh, Mike Hamilton and uh, Tom Renz. And, and many of these folks that, that were trying to push to uh, uh, you know remdesivir, we felt that was very harmful. So the same thing we're doing with the shots, we want to we want to do with remdesivir and the, and the hospital protocols that were were uh, were not fit, to, shouldn't have been used, and, and should have mm-hmm. you know we had other methods. So, but anyway, Carolyn Blakeman, she has come together with stop the shots 50 and working with Dr. Uh, Lindsay, mm-hmm. uh, Chansey. I, I call her Dr. Chansey, Chansey Chung, Lindsay, and they're, they're just putting this together and they're moving state to state. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so in Idaho, they, what they've done is is come together on a County level and this is, you know, we could do it on a state level, just like we're doing it here in Mississippi and, uh, Really what we have, we're trying to engage attorney generals all over the United States to, to push back. And mm-hmm. so, uh, w- you know, to be honest with you, it, it's, it's, it's tough. You know, even mm-hmm. here in Mississippi, we're, we're supposed to be a, you know, a very conservative state. You would think that we would, you know, we could get some uh, people to speak up. Mm-hmm. But uh, our, our uh, Republicans are, are very, um, you know, they're very apprehensive to even speak anything against the vaccines and uh, or anything against the federal government mandates uh you know anything dr fauci pushed the cdc fda uh they just you know they they feel it's too polarizing so we're continuing to work with them to try to get them to to come forward and 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 let us speak but but on a county level this may be more productive in some ways because if you have a county that is uh more receptive and and you can start with your sheriffs your supervisors Uh, even your, you know, city uh, councilman or alderman, whatever it may be in your local area, it's called nullification, okay? You know, I know in the state of Mississippi we have it, and I think in most states, it basically comes down to a county can nullify any state uh, law. Uh, It's just like a state should be able to nullify anything that's a, a federal mandate, you know, based on the 10th Amendment of the Constitution. And so counties have that same right. Uh, any law that's passed in the state, they can nullify it. So that's, that's kind of the route uh, people are going. I know there's a, uh, there's a group in Michigan that, that uh, has had some uh, some uh, good, good success at, at stopping the shots on the county level where they get their local um, politicians to get on board and then just push back and say, no matter what the state, you know, if the, if, if the state ever says that we're going to do the mandates for you know, any, any uh, vaccines, they'll just push back and say not in our county.
1: And and that's wonderful. But, you know, what I'm wondering, I guess I'd like to take it a bit further because in, in Tennessee, there is no state mandate and there never was for the COVID shot. And it, they passed laws even before I moved here to make it so you could not... Some people were still under the federal. So, yeah. you know, this process could work for that. But what I would like at the county level... I mean, how do we stop right now that like the Tennessee Department of Health is still using CDC grant money that's been pushed to the millions to drive their little van around to continue to promote and tell everybody, get your shot, get your shots, get your shots. I mean, I want to stop that. I want to stop the propaganda machine trying to figure out how to do that. One of the aspects of this this uh, we the people 50.com that i think is going to probably it's going to give us some leverage in ways that we haven't had before because it seems like even though we've got all the sh- science showing the mrna platform itself is toxic lipid nanoparticles are toxic making setting up you know a spike protein factory in your own cells you know there's just but that seems to be ignored But there's an aspect that's more recently been revealed and a lot of science come out, and that is the contamination of the shots. Mm -hmm. So if I'm understanding it right, and I'll let you expound on it, in the manufacturing process, um, first of all, the way they manufactured them for the clinical trials is different than how they manufactured for the mass public because they had to create a way of doing it that they could ramp up to scale. And so they're using um, E. coli bacteria, if I'm understanding it right. And what can happen is if you don't properly because you have to generate, you know, all of this mRNA material, you know, um, it's a big witch's brew. And I don't use that term lightly, you know, we really are in dark days here, but they make this witch's brew and they're supposed to extract the things called the plasmids and different things. I'll have you talk about that and Javier what you know about it, but apparently they have not. And up to like a third of the matter in the shot is these plasmids potentially, if I'm understanding it correctly. Um, And there's other things in the shot that shouldn't be there. um, Some broken DNA, some other things that can cause. um, So there are laws against um, selling contaminated products. Right. And so, um, again, it's uh, we the people 50 com. I think if you get a hold of those running this, what they can provide for you in your community, if you want to talk to your county commissioners or even your state AG, they can help provide the resources that you would need and the experts to come have these meetings, just like they did in Idaho, Um to explain all of the problems of what's going on so that action be, can be taken at your level. But, um, Javier, first of all, I'll go to you. I'm glad you're back. Um, what do you know about plasmids? Can you explain that? Or so should we go ahead?
0: Plasmids are the basic uh, 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 backbone for any molecular biology uh, molecular genetic studies. And they're uh, basically the circular pieces of DNA that you can actually insert into bacteria to express a particular sequence. Like for example, the mRNA sequence. And that's how you can make millions and millions of copies of mRNA or these plasmids uh, in bacteria. And what you do is then you grow them in a huge batch, you purify it, you extract out, you can extract out DNA and mRNA. There's several methods for doing that, but you're always gonna have some residual um, uh, contamination of these compounds. they actually do very, very high purification strategies that are still not gonna get rid of all these. And if you're doing a mass production run where you're trying to make billions and billions of shots, you are never gonna get the purity and quality that you need in order to get to that level, especially for mRNA. And then you have to actually take the mRNA, put it in lipid nanoparticles. You can introduce even another component of, uh, of contamination. And that doesn't even uh, exclude the potential of the, um, excuse me, of bacterial components that could actually induce severe anaphylactic reactions in some patients and severe inflammatory reactions in patients. So again, when you said it was a witch's brew, it, it is. And what most people don't realize it wasn't. Uh, so Pfizer and Moderna were the two contracting agencies that were ostensibly put in charge of making these products, but it wasn't them. It was subcontractors to Pfizer and Moderna. And there's this interlocking uh, system that is actually being overseen by the Department of Defense and also the NSA. So why is it the Department of Defense and the National Security Administration are actually the two lead CEOs in charge of this program for manufacturing? And the NIH and the CDC are listed as just science advisors. They're not even in charge of any of this. HHS is not even in charge of this. Mm-hmm. It is DOD. Pfizer and Moderna are just there to slap a label out there.
1: Yeah. And and to profit. And they very eagerly jumped on said, yeah, we'll we'll pretend to be, you know, and isn't it interesting how when when all of this was hand delivered to the American public, it was, oh, we're going to do Operation Warp Speed. We're going to invent these as if they weren't ready with those, you know. And, you know, who am I? I'm a former mystery writer, grocery checker. Right. I mean, I'm nobody, but I know how to read. And I I go online. I don't go to Twitter and Facebook. I go to PubMed. And when they started talking about the type of shots they wanted to develop, you know, and that they were going to be rolling out, I just went and looked up components and I was reading the state of the science on mRNA, the state of the science in lipid nanoparticle, and all of them said, oh, this is promising, but you know the adverse reactions make it not feasible, or we can't figure out how to keep these things isolated. They, they will travel to every part of the body. And it was right there, right there. And I'm like, how come every doctor in the nation didn't just go spend five minutes to find this out? Um, but and they don't want people to look. Um, they don't. But I'm. I, I want to turn back to wonderful Dr. Witcher here. So, um, it, add what you want on this subject and then uh, and carry yeah. It forward.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with uh, Dr. Xavier there 100. I mean this, you know, <clears throat> Pfizer and Moderna are just the front guys for this. I mean, it, it, and like you said, uh, Bernadette, it's very easy to go back and look and and see the. Uh, the evidence, it, it's, you know, there's multiple books that have been written uh, that, that uh, by multiple different people in different areas. Dr. Peter McCullough has a good book. Uh, of course, um, um, uh, uh, Kennedy, uh, Robert Kennedy, Jr. His book explains all this. Uh, Peter Braggen's book. I, we could go on and on. Mm-hmm. And, and it, Moderna. I mean, they've been working on this mRNA technology for a long time, decades yeah. and decades. And we know that uh, Bill Gates and Dr. Fauci met in the late '90s, and uh, and they made it. They cut a deal, you know. And we know Bill Gates said in 2010 that he invested 20 billion dollars in vaccines and and made 200 billion. So Mm -hmm. it was the he said it was the best investment he ever made. And we know that Moderna was founded about around 2010, and we know Bill Gates. Uh, help fund it, help get it started. And we know the Moderna and our department of defense and DARPA have in fact been working on this MR MRNA uh, t- vaccine technology. They had it ready to go. Uh, and, and when, when this uh, COVID uh, virus came out in China, they, they took the sequence, computerized sequence, put it into their, their uh, formulation and, and immediately had a, had a vaccine. Mm-hmm. So this all seems to be planned. And, um, uh, so, so, yeah, and, 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 and like you guys are saying that, you know, the, the uh, Department of Defense are the ones that are, are manufacturing this, and uh, they're doing it in places like Canada, and uh, there's not good oversight, and these plasmids and all sorts of contaminants, including the bacteria itself, are being found in these vials, and, um, and so, they're, you know, just uh, if nothing else alone, just for poor quality and, and poor uh, manufacturing processes, they need to be pulled.
1: Yeah. And, and explain, um, I've seen several shows on it. I, I haven't studied enough to really be articulate with the language, but these plasmids self-replicating and they have the potential to make it so that basically you are able, this would explain how if you have close exposure to somebody's vaccinated and you're not, that they are infecting you with the vaccine anyway, because the plasmids can carry, are they carrying the actual little mRNA or is it a spike protein? If it becomes infectious, um, that's what I'm not quite sure of, but it it does allow it to, for you to transfer it. I mean, when you read Pfizer's um, instructions to the people in the clinical trial, they were, you know, they were Wanted to make sure that you did not get pregnant during this time, and and you were supposed to track if you how close you were with other people. They knew at that time that this, something about these um, was transferable to other people, um, and that is highly concerning. So um Dr. Witcher we're getting a little low on time. We probably have like uh, I don't know 15 minutes or so, maybe a little bit more and I wanted to make sure you got covered um any of the topics that you think are really important for the American public to hear. Um so do you have anything that you would like us to touch on now?
2: Well, uh, you know, I just think that uh, stopping the shots is so important. Uh you know, we must do that. Just like you alluded to, I mean, our CDC is pushing these shots down to, to six-month-olds and pregnant women. Uh, mm-hmm. It's happening all over, certainly right here in the state of Mississippi. And it's been a uh, – there's a lot of money that's being pushed to do this. And so, um, you know, we, we just got to keep standing up and pushing back. You know, from from my standpoint as a medical doctor, the way I push back is, and the way I would encourage all medical doctors to push back that are seeing these vaccine injured, okay, don't – you know, what, what they want – want us to believe or try to promote is that this is all COVID this is long COVID you know the symptoms are very similar between long COVID and vaccine injury but uh you know I just would encourage doctors and nurses out there to uh be alert and if they see a vaccine injury take note of it and fill out a VAERS and uh and get involved you know get involved to 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 to, you know to tell the truth and then if you're a scientist, you know, like Dr. Uh, Jancy Chung-Lindsay in, in the area of toxicology or biochemistry, you know, uh, I just think it's very important that, that uh, we have as many scientists and, and, and biologists out there that uh, are familiar with these things like contamination, plasmids, etc. cetera, the, the harm that mRNA can do uh, not, not only to, uh, the immediate harm in these spike proteins, but also what can happen in the future. Is it, is it going to cause people to be sterile? We don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When is it going to cause cancers in the future? We certainly have seen a lot of cancers, uh, you know, that that we would normally have seen uh, post vaccination. So we're we're all concerned about these things. And I would just encourage people to go to to sites like the FLCCC uh, guys. That's Dr. Pierre Corey and Paul Merritt. Mm-hmm. Look them up. Stay informed there. Uh, go to stop. Uh, you know, uh, stop the shots. Fifty. You know, stay informed there. If you've been vaccine injured, I would encourage people to go to react19.org and, and, and network with those people. There's literally tens and tens of thousands of people, mostly in the United States, but all over, that are networked together, trying to find solutions to, to not only expo- tell the truth, but also find solutions to treatments. It, this is a very difficult thing to treat these vaccine injured patients. And so, uh, so yeah, yeah that, you know, we, we've got to... Um, start at all levels you know local politicians right. leaders all the way to your state senators representatives governors uh, ags uh you know we we have to all continue to work together to make progress
1: we absolutely do and you know on this show because we're you know we're funded by non-profit we we don't endorse any candidates but we do always say Check to see who's for medical freedom. Look at their record. Ask them the hard questions. See if they're willing to stand up and speak out in these areas. You know, if they're willing to get their thumb smashed, as we were talking about earlier, or yeah. stand up and take those those arrows that the media will lob at you on behalf of um, the government and uh, the pharmaceutical industry, then those might be the individuals that you really want uh, standing for you. I'm, um, you know, I'm not going to endorse you either way, though, but I. I see behind you is a sign that says you are running for governor in Mississippi. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I encourage people to just check out anybody who's running for office, check out, uh, you know, their competitors, um, have them do the hard questions, ask and, and find out because, you know, I've been saying this is a little bit crude. I hope you forgive me, but I've been saying for a couple of years now, it's stand up or bend over time. Um, there's no corners to hide in. Uh, we, we have to stand up. I, I, I'm s- beginning to get a bit frustrated with individuals who say, well, I can't because I'm so afraid I might lose this, I might lose that. I'm like, you don't understand. If you don't stand up, you lose it, right? So the only way to chance of preserving it, it might not whatever it is, your job, your lifestyle, whatever. No, life is never going to be the same again, right? But it's going to be better. The foundations of this nation are pretty dang amazing. And all we have to do is work together to restore the foundations of this nation. Take away all this stuff, like in the first hour, um, Dr. Witcher, Javier, and I were looking at in Washington state the public health infrastructure. I mean, it is just this massive $100 million. I don't know. It's even bigger than that. I don't know. I lose track. Money it means nothing to me anymore because the numbers are so astronomical. But um, get government out of our lives, out of our health, um, do our research. Now, I want to show you something. This is going a little bit. It's not conspiratorial because remdesivir is the only or was the only emergency use authorized drug to treat COVID, right? Well, it was it is made by a company named Gilead. I forget the original name of the company, but somewhere about the time that the book Handmaid's Tale was published, the company renamed itself Gilead. And in the book and in the TV series Handmaid's Tale, this very dystopian, uh, country emerges is captured out, out of part of the United States and they call it Gilead and Gilead is a biblical thing. It's like the oil of Gilead. It's, it comes from the Bible. Um, are you familiar with the book in the show? Um, Dr. I'm Richard?
2: not, I'm not, but, that, okay, but I'm very, familiar with Gilead and Remdesivir. Yeah.
1: yeah. Very, very popular uh, TV show that, um, Why can't I think it's it's not Netflix. It's it's the other um, online streaming service that has it. I'll think of it in a second. Um, So in this, you've got the leaders, the men wear dark suits, the women who are their wives wear uh, teal blue. In this dystopian future, everybody's infertile except for the women they call handmaids and they make them wear red scarlet and they're given to the power families in order to have babies for them. And then the young fertile girls wear pink. And then the women they call the Martha's who do the housework to the elite. They wear Brown. Okay. So I want to show you, yes, this is a real image comparison. This is Biden on inauguration day Mm -hmm. and there's his wife. Um, I'm not sure who this is, but in the in the reddish, you've got somebody in brown and somebody in pink. And, you know, then with the masks Um, down below here, what you're seeing are from the TV show, the costumes. Now, one color coincidence, two colors Hmm. (laughs) But you've got one, two, three, four. You know, you've got four to five if you and, you know, maybe men always wear black, but um that's just a little bit too that could not be a coincidence this is a big bronx cheer a big middle finger to the united states of america saying we're here you know i don't know how it's now the um the show is um is dystopian in the opposite of what we have then it was extremely religious community that you know just pretended to pray all the time and, you know, cast out anybody who might've been, um, might've been gay or something like that. And what we have is the opposite is they've brought all of these other issues. Right. And then they're not like going after conservatives. It's like kind of the opposite, but something nefarious is happening. Something very dark is happening. And, you know, we have to, we have to speak truth and light and we can need to do it with no fear you know um i'm so grateful to radio stations like this kknw out in washington state we're airing live out there right now um and CHD tv and you know we need to make sure we keep these airwaves free because there's more and more censorship coming there we've got a, a european union um Data DSA, I forget now what it stands for. We talked about it last week. Um, di-
0: do you do you mind if I ask a question yeah. to Dr. Witcher? Um, no, go. Yeah. So one of the questions that I have, and I'm I'm always curious to find out what the political environment is like uh, now that you've started a, your campaign for governor. What has been the response by one or both parties, or whatever party uh, that you know you've you've been you've been courting or are interested in running with?
2: Yeah, um yeah, th- thanks Dr. Javier. I I, yes. you, I I called you something different earlier. Sorry about no that. No worries. Javier. Yes. Yeah, um, well, you know, I'm a conservative, always have been. I, I grew up in the Reagan years, and so uh, you know, that I'm running as a Republican, but uh, you know, I am excited that uh Robert Kennedy Jr. is running. You know, I, I've never been a uh, you know, proponent of, of uh of the Kennedys and Democrats per se, but I have, I met Robert Kennedy, uh, at defeat the mandates in Washington DC in January 21. You know, I was on the steps with him on the Lincoln Memorial when he spoke and uh, I'm a prayerful man. And, uh, as he spoke and you know, I was praying and thinking, wow, this sounds like a presidential speech. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I've just been honored to be able to be associated with him. And, uh, you know, even though I'm not a, I'm not a Democrat and, uh, but I believe God's called him to run if for nothing else to expose uh, the pharmaceutical industry, expose this whole COVID debacle, and to expose these shots as being what they are harmful. And so, uh, you know, I voted for Trump. And, uh, you know, and, and he is that's the one thing that I, I've been disappointed with Trump is that he's, uh, you know, this Operation Warp Speed, I, I feel that he was duped. By, by Fauci and uh, Alex Azar and many others, Birch and uh, you know he he's he really needs to to you know not promote uh, this Operation Warp Speed as as saving hundreds of millions of people as he as he's done and I'm praying that he'll he'll change that you know because I I, I am still you know I promote him to to be our next president I, I think that uh, you know he um, you know Biden anytime you have a, a wannabe dictator that can uh, put your opponent in jail. I mean, we're we're in a in a terrible situation in our nation and uh, we're really falling. We're we're not we're not going to be the land of the free and the home of the brave if we can't stand up and and have a have a fair election. And, uh, you know, I think Trump needs a second chance, Uh, you know, because one thing I know he will do is he'll he'll pull us out of the who he'll defund the who just like he did previous. And uh, he, he won't stand with the United Nations. So I, I think that's where we have to go at this point.
0: Would you like to see a debate between Trump and uh, Kennedy?
2: I would love it. <laughs> Absolutely. It needs to be. Hey, I think uh, I think all the Americans need that, 100%.
0: That'd be one hell of a debate.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I I I would I, I I have so much fun. I often forget I'm on the radio, and so all these questions I want to ask, I cannot because we're not supposed to get political on this show. But you brought up some good things. This is a show of food for thought, it's not an endorsement. But you know, we do need to uh, really think about these things. And and I I go back to the beginning here. Mama Bear, former Grocery Checker mystery writer. I looked up the ingredients of the shots they were developing. Why the heck did any politician not do that? I just don't understand that because really so much. Why didn't every single government and public health official look at, at the huge body of of science on face masks and viruses? It's absurd to me that they did not because, you know, the, I I OK now. Yeah. I, we got one minute and I'm hogging it with, I don't want to do that. Um, so anyway, you know, Dr. Witcher, I'm so glad we finally did get you on that. We got connected. Um, thank you for starting, um, what you're doing to stop the shots. And again, I'm going to let people know the name of the, uh, for everybody to go explore. It's called we, the people, 50.com. Um, recall the shots and explore that contact the people see if in your area you can bring that and stop it and then look around who's getting elected where you are uh seek them out ask them the hard questions and make sure you put your vote with the individuals who are going to stand with you for medical freedom and i get rid of all of this um nefarious stuff
2: going on (laughs) yeah
1: Last word, Doctor Witcher. Gonna, he's going to cut us off in a minute. Uh, yeah,
2: I just, just, I'm honored, and, and uh, just thank you for allowing me to come on, Bernadette and Doctor Javier. Uh, just been an honor to be here, and to thank you all in, uh, to, to keep in the fight, to, you know, for freedom and for for um, just all that you do. Appreciate you.
1: Oh, you're welcome. We appreciate you too, sir. And Javier, any last words? Here we got. He's telling us one minute.
0: <clears throat> Nothing that uh, you know. Keep on fighting. Keep on speaking truth to power. Um, don't back down. Again, mm-hmm. the the moment we 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 get on our knees uh, uh, in subservience is the moment that they win.
1: Yeah. And money, 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 money drives everything. So let's quit feeding the monster. Um, I, I need to get better at it myself. Look at everything in your life and, you know, maybe pick one thing a week that feeds the monster and decide to take that out of your life. Uh, and with that, uh, we're going to call it a night. You've been listening to an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW and CHD TV. We will be back next week.
2: Thank you.
0: Hi, I'm Brad Dacus, President and Founder of the Pacific Justice Institute. For over 25 years, PJI's mission has been to defend religious freedom, parental rights, and the sanctity of human life. PJI has protected patients from being taken off life support and stood up for citizens around the country facing job loss for medical decisions that should be left between them and their doctor. For free legal representation and resources, visit PJI. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you.